take thou authority to preach the gospel. Indeed, I look upon all the world as my parish. Welcome to our latest episode of Field Preachers slash webinar with two friends of mine and amazing people who have a lot to contribute, uh, Wendy Hudson and Mike Bachman. Wendy's at Two Rivers Church in South Carolina, and Mike is at Union Coffee in Dallas. So, hello, hello. Welcome. Thank you for being here, guys. Hello. I'm glad to be here. All right. Well, we're going to be talking you through some tips regarding fundraising or external sources of revenue, entrepreneurial planting, grant writing, um, merch, all, all the things, right? Because giving a lot of churches, so what I'm hearing nationally is church plants are faring better than some established churches because we don't have the same mortgage or other, you know, needs for finances that, that established churches do have. And yet, we're seeing giving going down. It's hard when you're online and attendance isn't what it used to be. Um, so I know I was on in a training with the UK where they're predicting that giving to nonprofits will go decrease by 48% in the next 12 months. So um, that's a little scary. I know everyone on the call was like, whoa. Uh, so hopefully that's not what happens here in the US as well, but I we do expect it to go down in some way. And so how can we be innovative and start planning now when it comes to fundraising so that we can fund these new faith communities, which are crucial to the future of the UMC. Um, so with that introduction, uh, Wendy, Mike, you wanna talk us through what you're seeing, experiencing, what's working, what's not, and then answer any questions that folks on the call have. Sure. Um, well, I don't mind if it's okay with you, Mike, I'll go ahead and start. Um, I'm Wendy Hudson. I use she, my pronouns are she and her. Um, I am the planting pastor at Two Rivers Church. We're in Charleston, South Carolina, and uh, we're two and a half years old right now, which, um, as you know, is among the most fun and uh, potentially mischievous and dangerous time of toddlerhood. And so we're fully living into that um, identity as a congregation. Um, and we are a, a fully queer inclusive and anti-racist congregation are two of our kind of main intersectional commitments. Um, we also were very young, probably like the majority of the rest of you. So, uh, you know, with children added in, our average age is uh, 29. And that probably has dropped a little bit because the new folks that have joined us over the last nine months have been primarily in their 20s. Um, and then our, without uh, 18 and above, our average age is 40. Um, so when we made this shift to digital it, back in March, it was super e probably like for the many of the rest of you, it was super easy for us. We already lived primarily online. Um, a lot of ways that were really, you know, pretty simple for us to be able to, um, to make these shifts and adjustments. Um, so I wanted to just kind of start off by the, the, the bigger picture. Again, y'all, I'm saying nothing here that you all don't already know, do, or can teach me better at. Um, but it's kind of the big picture ways of, that, we've, uh, that we've approached fundraising that have really worked for us over the past nine months. Um, and one of those first things is we talk about money all the time. Uh, we made the decision the very first week that we shut down that we were going to give it over and above and give an extra um, gift to our our solidarity partners is what some churches call their mission groups or agencies they work with their solidarity partners and we decided at the very beginning to go um, to do a tithe off the top uh, to our most vulnerable 
solidarity partner the first week of shutdown. Um, and that would be in addition to all the other giving that we normally do. And so we talked about that really clearly that this was, you know, an act of solidarity. It was an act of resistance. It was an act of abundance in the midst of so much unknown and scarcity. Um, and so that really set the stage for us in general. We talk about money all the time, but in these really specific ways. Um, and so we have characterized all of our giving um, as, as acts of resistance, acts of discipleship, um, acts of following Jesus, and acts of creating, cultivating community. Uh, I asked some of our folks in um, my church kind of why they give and what they and what what are the reasons that they give and um, so, several folks said they give because they value redistributing income um, that was something important to them uh, they value the we talk about uh, percentage giving uh, recurring percentage giving or tithing that's what you kind of uh, how we talk about it um, and how that was really important for folks, um, but also the sense of being part of something bigger than themselves. Uh, that was also a really important part of why people gave. And so that's part of what we do is we just talk about giving all the time. Um, let me see if I can share my screen. Awesome. I love that, Wendy, and I love the introduction and some description about the, you know, the stage of life that your plant is in. So while you're pulling up those slides, yeah. Mike, can you jump in and tell us a little bit about Union Coffee? For those who don't already know you, you infamous, sure. um, and a little bit of your context, and then we can dive into some of these principles. Yeah, so um, I'm the founding pastor for Union Coffee. We are, uh, gosh, about eight and a half years old, and um, something along those lines. Uh, and we you know, have multiple revenue sources uh, to keep things working here. We do operate a fully functional coffee shop um, seven days a week. And um, uh, we, so that accounts for a good chunk of our revenue. We also do grants, um, do a couple big fundraising events a year, uh, donations from our congregation and whatever we can find in the couch cushions. It all goes into like the same pot to keep things rolling. Um, but uh, yeah, and then as far as our experience with, um, you know, kind of COVID realities of 2020 and funding uh, a little bit different than um, uh, than what Twin Rivers, it sounds like, has encountered. Twin Rivers, did I get it right? Two Twin Rivers. Rivers, right? Two Rivers, so sorry. Um, <laughs> two Rivers. Um, I, was, I was so close. Um, <laughs> uh, the Two Rivers has had in that um, our population also skews young. We, um, our average age of our congregation is 24 and a half. Um, and we have almost zero children in the midst of that. So it's um, uh, mostly folks in their 20s to early 30s um, with some that are under that. And um, so for us, we've encountered things on a couple different fronts. We function in many ways as a nonprofit. And so we have experienced the dip in giving and the inability to do big fundraising events that we would normally rely upon. Um, so we've had to pivot around that. Um, operating a coffee shop obviously comes with a lot of challenges when you're in a big city. Uh, where COVID rates have been through the roof and we hold as a core value sanctuary. So we've had to um, significantly reduce the amount of traffic that we can generate in that way. Um, and then third is a worshiping congregation. And, um, you know, we've had uh, the folks that we serve being in their 20s are a pretty vulnerable population to the economic downturn of COVID. Um, so we have seen uh, negative dings kind of in all three of those areas. Uh, and have worked kind of around that uh, to to help supplement and and make things work. PPP was a huge 
um, win for us. It was critical to our sustainability this year. Um, but uh, yeah, we've certainly encountered our share of challenges that came with 2020. Awesome, thanks. Okay, Wendy, um, Mike, guide us through this. Help us figure out what we can do to increase um, generosity in our faith communities. Uh, these are, I just kind of wrote down a few things that, that we do. Um, you know, we share concrete stories every week about what people, again, this is something y'all already know, what, what concrete stories. Uh, we've done a series of uh, sharing like why members give. And so we took um, a couple, a couple of weeks throughout the year where every day a different member shares a different story um, about why they give. And we share that through all of our channels. And that um, was, that was really helpful um, to us and really encouraging, especially as we talked about recurring percentage giving uh, and leading people toward the idea of tithing, which was something that most folks had not ever had uh, a positive experience around or had no experience around. And so having people share their stories, um, were, was really effective for us as before we made the ask for people to commit to recurring percentage giving. Um, we also probably most of you offer every opportunity possible to give. So you can give on our website, you can give on Facebook, you can give on PayPal, you can give on Venmo, you can give by texting. Like there is absolutely no way that that people can. We have a post office box that people can mail a check to. So there's absolutely nothing that um, doesn't a way to give money that doesn't, uh, that we don't have available, available, um, really at all times for, uh, so people can do that as often as they can. Um, just like Mike was doing, thank your donors often and profusely and, uh, not be afraid to ask for, um, investments. Probably one of the best things that we've done, um, to, gain some pretty passive income has been the um, donate button on Facebook. And we have started putting that on just about every post that we make or every opportunity that we have. You know, we started putting it up on our, obviously on our worship, our because we're still fully online, on our worship posts um, on Sunday mornings. And we found that that has really been a way for people to step into um, regular giving. We found a lot of folks started doing regular giving through the Facebook giving during worship and we would make a special mention of it. And then that has then shifted some of them to doing recurring online percentage giving. Um, so that's been really that we felt have found that to be useful. Um, but also we've been attaching it to lots of other things, especially anything that's externally focused and talking about when we're raising money for other people or groups or organization. And it's really has helped us um, broaden our donor base, uh, especially with folks that are peripheral to our work, um, but who live in our community. Uh, that's been a really great way for our people to share and have their networks give, but also for just kind of passive people in our community to participate in our work. And then we can start cultivating donors um, through, through that particular way. So a great specific example of that that I loved was your Giving Tuesday. Giving Tuesday wasn't for your general fund at Two Rivers, right? Where did the money go? And how much did you raise? Sure. Yeah, we set a goal um, of, we've done it a couple different ways the last two times, last year's Giving Tuesday, and then when they did Giving Tuesday in May this year through Facebook, uh, we split both of those. So we set said like, you know, the first half would be external and then the, the second half would be, would kind of support our internal work. And we decided just kind of read, reading the room of the 
financial state of our community and kind of the country that we would give all of this away. And so we partnered with our local elementary school, which we had done early in COVID to help them provide a backpack buddies weekend food program. Uh, we helped support that in the spring. And so we were able, we dedicated, you know, the first $2,000 of that to uh, fully funding that program for the spring semester. And then we set a goal of an additional $1,000 to uh, underwrite food support that we already provide to our refugee communities and then some other food insecure folks right around us. Um, and so at the end of the day, between our main fundraisers some individuals that started fundraisers and offline gifts, we were able to get $3,800 from 60 donors. Um, so the purpose for us, the way that we've really shifted toward using like those Giving Tuesday opportunities is not for that internal funding. We're saving those asks for end of the year campaigns, capital campaigns, some larger sustainability campaigns. Um, so instead of asking people for, you know, some significant gifts ahead of time that we have those pledges and then using that to set our goal. Um, we're saving that now, those for some bigger things. And we're using the Facebook, like Giving Tuesday ideas, really to, um, as a brand, brand awareness, congregational awareness and community investment. So we give it all away. And our purpose isn't necessarily large amounts of money, but cultivating lots of new donors who have not connected with us before. Awesome. Um, thank you. That's incredible. Mike, thoughts about how you're cultivating generosity, especially with the average age of your, you know, congregant being 24 and a half? <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, there are several things that we do, and a lot of it lines up with what Wendy talked about. Um, you know, uh, there's this question of, um, well, I guess the question of talking about money being an ongoing thing. And we do have that as well as other conversations that, that cut to kind of like unspeakable things that the willingness to talk about unspeakable things, which finances are included in that are oftentimes a way to get to greater levels of connection with people. And so we do talk about money, not just like what are unions needs, but we do series where we talk about finances and we encourage people to have those honest conversations about it um, so that it reduces the taboo level with it. Um, that way, when I do make a specific ask or call somebody up or things like that, it's less of an awkward thing because they're kind of used to it. And we also build it concretely into our discipleship model. So the way that when folks become a member of union, they actually go through like a four month long program called Union Way, where they take our core values and they put them into key practice in their um, life over the course of several months. So at the end of the, that time, they can look back in a definitive way and say, I'm a more generous person or a more boundary breaking person or more whatever core value they've embodied. And one of those is generosity. Um, and so we make the expectation that someone set up a regular occurring gift when they go through the process of Union Way. Um, and uh, that amount might be $5 or it might be $500, whatever that case is, but we want to start that virtue and that practice of giving. And I can't underscore enough the importance of getting people to set up the automatic monthly recurring gifts. Um, it makes a huge difference because it allows us to plan so much better. And it removes, I mean, like, look, I'm in ministry primarily with folks in their 20s, which are the flakiest bunch of, <laughs> bunch of folks on the planet. Um, and so <laughs> given that reality, having that automatic thing happen, and they know they are, right? Like, I just named that. I say, y'all a bunch of flaky motherfuckers. And <laughs> I just put that out there. So just set up your weekly or set up your monthly donation. And uh, <laughs> because 
this is something that you want to support. They're like, yeah, 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 I need to do that. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so that's been one of the, the key things um, for us. Uh, I could do, and I have done entire workshops on how to leverage events like Giving Tuesday. In our area, we have a thing called North Texas Giving Day, um, which is Giving Tuesday, but on steroids, um, where nonprofit organizations in the North Texas area raise in one day, uh, something to the, I think this past year is $53 million. Um, uh, we didn't each get $53 million, but if you add all of us together. <laughs> um, and... Uh, um, so we've come up with a lot of strategies over time. Um, this past year, we raised a little over $100,000 through North Texas Giving Day campaign. Um, and uh, it involves um, uh, leveraging um, matching gifts. There are a lot of things that I've learned from the nonprofit world that the church doesn't do nearly enough of, right? One of those is setting up matching gifts. If you know you're going to have a large gift from somebody, instead of having them just give that to you, go to them and ask if you can set it up as a matching gift. Here's the thing. It's a shell game. Um, it's <laughs> the reality is if someone's willing to put up matching dollars, they're going to give you all that money anyway. But for some reason, human beings are wired that they give when one, there's a sense of urgency, right? Two, when they have a feeling that their generosity is going to be amplified. And so setting up some sort of matching gift where if we raise a certain amount by a certain period of time, then we get this other thing. Then people have the urgency the, the, the platform and the um, kind of incentive to make that gift now. Um, otherwise, people will procrastinate it forever. Um, so, and if you don't have someone who you know is gonna be a large giver who can help create that sense of urgency, find something else that creates urgency. Find something else that makes it matter in that moment and or recruit those large donors. So when we do North Texas Giving Day, it happens in the middle of September. At the beginning of August, um, I'm calling to some of my larger donors. I'm setting up one-on-one to ones with them and I'm asking them specifically for matching gifts so that I know before North Texas Giving Day even starts, I've already got $35,000 of matching funds lined up um, so that I feel pretty much a guarantee I'm going to raise at least 70,000 out of this. Um, so I'm going to jump in and give like one example. If you don't have a matched giver, what's some random thing you can do? Michelle Matthews is a new, they're a newer plant a few years in, in Virginia. They did their first Giving Tuesday and she said, listen, if we hit 2,500, I will rap and embarrass myself publicly on Facebook. And then if we hit 5,000, all my staff will have a rap battle. And they're all, you know, 30, 40 something-ish white people. And it was just really embarrassing but beautiful and they raised that money five grand in 24 hours so um so yeah you can create those ideas but i want to um really highlight something that mike does well and mike yay i'm actually saying really nice things about you so i'm glad this is being recorded for posterity but i know that giving tuesday is happening or not giving tuesday the north texas giving day is happening because mike texts me every year i've never been to worship at union but he reaches out and lets me know and makes it easy and shares the link and says flattering things about me so i feel like i have to give at least something because it's going to be matched and the amplification thing even woos me to contribute so um so that's a lot of hard work on your end to send out those strategic texts. And you were mentioning even before this call, you were doing like handwritten notes on envelopes. Can you say a little bit about that? Like it really does take time as a leader of the faith community to inspire people to give more. Yeah. So the way that the texting works that um, Rachel and Susan endured for me um, this past year is that basically what I do is I'll send 
I'll create the a, a generic kind of uh, text that's basically something along the lines of, hey, it's North Texas Giving Day today. Um, you know, you're about to receive a personalized list of six reasons why you should totally give to Union on North Texas Giving Day. Here's the link, right? So I copy and paste that, uh, or I copy, I paste it, I send that one to, to Rachel, and then I write um, number one. And I highlight things that Union does that I know align with what Rachel values. Right, so, and that's, that's one of the key things of giving is aligning the values of the person um, that you're reaching out to and making the ask with, with what your organization specifically does. Um, and so that kind of hustle makes a big difference um, to do that personal touch. So they talk about this in um, political campaign circles, that if you wanna get a return from an ask on anything, whether it's financial, whether it's showing up for the polls, there's, they've kind of have a hierarchy of return on investment. The most likely to yield a result is a personal, like in-person ask between two people. Um, number two is a, a phone call. Number three is a text message. Um, number four is an email. Number five is a letter in the mail. Um, uh, and so that hierarchy is something that I pay attention to while fundraising as well while also recruiting volunteers, while like all of those things, I'm uh, trying to evaluate which of that tier is called for um, as we navigate through that. And so as far as these notes that I'm writing on, um, you know, letters to, to donors, this is year end letter that goes out. We have a donor list of about a thousand people. Um, it's just under a thousand. And um, I know that this only really matters for the kind of like empty nester baby boomers and older. They're the only ones that are going to open this thing. So like the random 24 year old who donates to union, I'm not taking the time to write a personalized note to them because I know this is going in the trash. Um, I'm going to send it on a lark because a couple of them are going to give us $50 and it's going to cover the cost of postage. Right. But um, I'm not going to invest the extra time there, but that 67-year-old empty nester who opens every last bit of mail, um, I'm definitely writing a note uh, to them. Um, <laughs> uh, so think strategically about who gets what personal touches to. Um, That's great. And how has your approach changed at all since COVID with, I'm assuming the coffee house has had to shift in terms of its business operations or revenue streams. So how has that changed um, your financial situation and approach? this year? Yeah, um, I'm trying to think how to do that quickly. Uh, we've, <laughs> uh, you know, pivoting a, a, a business around um, COVID realities is, is a bit of an endeavor. Uh, we've been very fortunate to be in a place where we have a significant outdoor space, a walk-up window, and that's helped us a lot. Um, and we live in a very temperate climate, right, where we're able to continue to serve um, folks for a good chunk of the year without weather being a big issue. Um, uh, we have seen though, because of the incredible work of our staff, we have an amazing team, uh, loyalty from our customers, and just hard work at trying lots of things. Our sales actually this year, um, since July, have started outpacing our sales from the previous year. So operating out of a window, we've had higher sales July through now than we had operating in our full coffee shop. Um, and that's only because of the hard work of our um, staff who are able to pivot so well. That's amazing. Um, 
Okay, so Wendy, you want to dive in with some more of the content and slides that you put together? And, and while you're pulling that up, a, another question has come in. Do you guys have ideas for new plants that have not yet launched for a fundraising? And it, I'll, I'll jump in with the one that we teach in like church planting, you know, 101 is you reach out to every friend and family member you've ever, ever had and tell them about your vision and ask them to support it and help fund it and, and provide that seed money. Um, so that's kind of your low hanging or the relational fruit that Mike was talking about. You know, you reach out to those people that care about you or care about what you're doing, um, start there and find partner churches that can also commit to um, supporting you financially from the outset. Um, any other thoughts, Wendy, Mike? Fundraising early on before you launch? We did, I mean, just, we just did lots of one-on-one um, -on -one asks to folks. Uh, a lot of that, I, I always say I was a modified parachute drop. Um, it was in a new part of town, but I'd lived in Charleston for six years already. So I had some relationships. So I just really like leveraged every single relationship that I could and just made lots of individual asks, even to people who I knew weren't going to be part of our worshiping community or even necessarily agree with kind of everything that we turned out to be but initially had and had a relationship with me and were willing to support that um and so that was something that you just like can't be afraid to ask yeah um, how much money did each of you raise before you launched Ooh, sorry answer that mike and then say what you were going to say which i'm sure is profound uh, before we launched, um, in addition to the amount that the annual conference provided for us uh, as, as seed funding, we raised prior to launch probably about another 100000 150000 something like that. Um, and we ended up in this kind of weird um, game of chicken between the annual conference and individual donors, where there are donors who are like, is the conference behind it? If the conference is behind it, I'll write a check. And the conference is like, we don't know if you can raise the rest of the money. Um, show us some money from other folks and then we'll, we'll green light it. And I just sat in the middle and screamed a lot. Um, and then finally someone wrote a very large check and that made a big difference with getting annual conference support. Um, but uh, yeah, one of the best suggestions I can make as far as fundraising prior to launch is one, make sure you know your story. Like what is the transformation that is going to exist because this new plant is going to be there? Um, and secondly, how um, on paper and beautiful, hire a graphic design artist to make it look good um, and make sure it's on paper because even though you can email it to it and even though we live in 2020, um, there's two big advantages of paper. Having it printed out suggests some measure of permanence when you're presenting something that's not yet established. Um, and so I think it helps with credibility. Secondly, it gives people something they have to deal with, right? You sit down, you meet with someone, you do an ask, you hand them this big, and we did like a big piece of paper, it was irregular shaped. Um, and we did it strategically because we wanted this awkwardly large thing in their lap. Um, so that it either sits on their desk and gets in the way, it takes up space in their bag, whatever, so that they have to kind of come back to it. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, put together a solid presentation, get a graphic design artist to, to design it, and put it on a piece of paper or pieces of paper. Love it. And that ties into this next principle. Wendy's going to um, kind of unpack for us a little bit, you know, know your story, know your why. Yeah, uh, you know, the, I always say the first hire that we did after me was our communications director. Um, and I would do that all over again 
um, anybody who will list, if they ask, I always say hire a communications person first. Um, it, it changed because, because all like, cause your values flow into your, design and your image, you know, your logos, which flows into how you live that out in the rest of your, I mean, it just like, it provides that seam, that seamless thread all the way through. Um, so I kind of, I actually asked my folks, um, as put the, and I kind of asked these questions, like, why do you give? What ways do you prefer to give? And what would make it more likely for you to give? And just had them like, just kind of put down some answers, which is very useful actually in planning our end of the year <laughs> um, campaign, which we're going to launch next week. The one thing around why do you give that surprised me the most? I mean, of course they gave all the answers you'd expect. I believe in the mission. I uh, believe that my, my small gift put together with other people's gifts can make a large impact. Like, of course people gave that. The thing that surprised, I guess kind of stood out to me the most was folks said they gave because they trusted us as an organization and because we were transparent with how we used our money and where it went. Um, and so I, I think those that uh, to me, that goes back to talking about money all the time. Um, it's not secret. It's not something that people wonder about. You know, we, we do the check present presentations when we raise money for people, we have people send, you know, now it's like send videos of what they've done with the money and we share them during worship. Um, we've done all these real tangible things, um, and then other organizations then, you know, tag us back and promote us not only one time, but cultivating relationships that happens over and over again. Um, so I was really, that really stood out to me that transparency and trust were really key in why people gave. Um, and when I asked them, like, what ways do you prefer to give? Almost everybody said the recurring percentage giving, doing something online was one of the main ways that they um, prefer to give. A few people said they really missed the past, like putting something in a basket, um, which when we would pass a basket, we would sometimes get $3. <laughs> Some like, people just don't do that. Um, they don't have, who has cash? But uh We've, that's why we've really been intentional about keeping a giving option in our worships or in our online worship. You know, we have a giving moment every single week, um, partly because people, and that is when some people make their gift, even if it's electronic. Um, and then that whole idea of what would make it more likely for you to give, um, almost all of those responses were that the concrete impact they could see out of their gift, especially gifts that um, did not impact, did not serve ourselves. We almost never, ever talk about, I can't actually remember a time we've talked about giving to support how people's gifts supports the work that we do at Two Rivers or pays my salary or funds our website. I don't think that's happened at all. Um, but we, but because we talk about giving away, 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 and we do it, then people are more generous on the um, recurring giving end. So it's, we, it's, we, it's actually been not talking about our own needs has been a boost for us. That's awesome. What about you, Mike? So I think um, I would offer a, a quick thing because I agree with everything that, that Wendy said. The, the only thing that I, I would add is um, I've got kind of an arsenal of stories in my back pocket of transformation because union exists. Right. And so if I'm sitting down, whether it's with a one on one, whether it's in front of a room full of people, I'm trying to think in my head, what is it that this person values and what's the right story to tell them? So they get a sense of 
again, it's that overlapping of like, what is it that this person values? And then how does union meet that need? Um, and, and that gets to a fundamental thing of how that I kind of wanted to add on to this. Um, and, and if I can push back just a little bit, Rachel, on one of the examples that you gave, um, I, I don't think we should do things where it's like, if you give us a certain amount of money, we'll do this embarrassing thing. Um, and, and I push against that a little bit for, for two reasons. One is I feel like it puts us in a position of like begging or embarrassment when the reality is, is like what we do has value and has worth. And so if the people who attend our churches or in our neighborhoods or value what we do, like they should pay for that to be a reality. And I shouldn't have to make a fool of myself in order to receive a paycheck. I shouldn't have to make myself look stupid in order for my kids to have health insurance. And so I kind of like push against and try to avoid those situations where that could be what comes across because at the end of the day, when I, um, the best thing that I ever did and the best advice I ever received on fundraising was from a guy named Steve Gruber, who does a lot of fundraising for a children's hospital here in Dallas. Uh, he was a member of our anchor church. Never gave any money to Union, but he gave me this and it was well worth it. Um, he, uh, <laughs> uh, he, he said, look, don't, don't ever ask anybody for money. Don't ever ask anybody for money. Um, give them the opportunity to make a difference financially. Um, and that's a huge thing. And for us as pastors, right, like our responsibility is the discipleship of our people. And we believe that, that money can be used as a tool for discipleship. Um, God probably didn't make very many of you rich, if any of you rich. Uh, and, um, but God has given you a vision. God has given you the ability to lead a congregation full of people. God has given you the opportunity to mobilize a community, right? So take this thing <laughs> that God has given to you and offer that to somebody, right? Like we can make this thing happen when you contribute financially. You aren't asking for something. You're giving them a chance to be a part of this. And that levels the power dynamics so that we're no longer begging. We're no longer in this place of asking for something so that we get to do a thing because it's not us who's doing a thing. We're giving someone a chance to be a part of God's work in the neighborhood. So um, I, I, I hear your pushback, right? And I, I validate it. I appreciate it. I will say that for me, in relation to that one particular circumstance, I don't think your main way of fundraising should be something that embarrasses you or your staff or your leaders. And yet 2020 is an off year. And so in this case, they said, well, if we reach 2,500, what would you guys like to see? And they wanted to laugh as a community of faith. And so it was the community saying, let's celebrate, let's be hokey. I know that other planters have done fundraisers to open preschools. And they've said, listen, if all the kids can raise $1,000 towards this preschool, we'll do a water balloon fight. So it's kind of hokey, kind of embarrassing, but brings joy. So I would say, look at the specific context, the circumstance. Sure. Overall, people should not be giving um, because you're begging as a pastor. You're absolutely right. that Because that's not going to be sustainable. They have to give to transformation and to impact. And something helpful that I've seen a lot of established churches and church plants realize over COVID is, oh my gosh, when we're asking people to give, we have nothing that they're giving to other than our general fund. Why are they even giving to us? And so it's really pushed churches to say, who are we? And what what is our purpose? And what difference are we making? So so absolutely. Um, love that. 
good stuff. And um, we had another question come in. And unless you guys want to respond to that, feel free. We can go back and forth all day, Buckman. <laughs> okay. Oh, does um, merch play a role? In yeah, the merch. The yeah, anyway? let's let's talk merch. Wendy, how much merch and, and money have you raised through your t-shirt sales, like in the last year? We actually haven't, I mean, I actually asked my uh, communications director that we've only raised about between 500 and $1,000 off of our merch, which doesn't seem like uh, a whole lot. I mean, that's $500 to $1,000 more than we had, but we have, we have a huge, uh, for our community, size of our community, we have a, we have a really big merch store. Um, and so it's been important for us as a money raiser, but more than that, it's been a, um, it's a awareness raiser so you know like people wear it's so like the joke is i can't believe i'm not actually not wearing i i wear i have all 19 of our t-shirts and so like i just wear a different or two one or two every day you know uh, but then also like our people wear them out and so for us it's really been an awareness raising and a few of them just are our like our church or our logo but some of our most popular are our black lives matter shirt which was you know 100 percent of the prices of that shirt went to one of our solidarity partners uh jesus is a feminist shirt is probably one of our other um most popular shirts so some of those and then our tagline is you are beautiful um and so we have we sell a lot of those so mostly our merchandise um, is a way of awareness raising and for a little bit um uh, I have a friend who calls them our billboards, uh, but I feel like that's an appropriate um, use of our resources. What I really love about that is um, there's a difference between like uh, a side hustle and social enterprise, right? And that smacks of social enterprise because social enterprise is the kind of thing where like, yes, it generates revenue, but it generates revenue in a way that amplifies our mission, right? Like it matters um, for two rivers that, the notion that Jesus was a feminist is out there on a shirt. It, that, that, that is mission fulfillment in and of itself. So if you don't raise a bunch of money on it, but you get that message out there, then that's a win. <laughs> uh, and so I'm all about those opportunities, um, whether it's with merch, whether it's with whatever else it might be. Um, you know, a side hustle is something that like, yeah, we get some money because we have a preschool that's in our building. Union doesn't, I'm just giving an example. Right, but if it doesn't contribute to the mission of the organization and really fit into it, then, you know, that's just something on the side. Uh, but social enterprise is the stuff that really I think we should be pursuing if we're looking at alternative revenue. That's awesome. Is and it's passive. Like, I mean, like we promote it every now and then, but it doesn't, you know, we, we use a third party, you know, print. I mean, so once it's up, it, it makes all the money itself, you know, and so that also is helpful. I love that. Is the merch offered at Union um, more of a social enterprise? Do you guys have merchandise, Mike? What What are you guys doing? We have some lovely coffee. Um, no, and we do have like merch stuff as well, but all of that we treat as social enterprise, right? And and the way that I talk about that is, or under the way that we understand that is that it is an integral part of our mission and our mission fulfillment. Um, that we have a very intentional structure that links all of our coffee operations to fulfilling our mission. Um, so, you know, as great as the apostle Paul was, and I guess he was better at some things, uh, I look at his tent making stuff and I'm like, that's just a side hustle, man. Uh, but I look at like monks who make kick-ass cheese and I'm like, okay, y'all are a social enterprise because the monks that make really good cheese, generally speaking, they use cheese making as the primary metaphor that they use to teach, um, you know, novices 
how to live out their faith on a regular basis or how to be in community, right? So if you take that thing that's generating revenue and make it a central piece of the way you develop discipleship, apostleship, spirituality, then that's solid. If you're just making tents and selling them, okay, I'm just not going to get excited about it. It's not a bad thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I know that something we're encouraging developers to think about is to look in your annual conference for universities that have a social entrepreneurship program, find people in that program who have a faith-based or related idea and partner them with a planter as a team. Think about what they could accomplish together with a shared vision um, and the support of each other moving forward. So, so that is huge. Yay. Oh, exciting. Okay, guys, your questions are inspiring. Great discussion and dialogue. So um, keep dropping your questions in the chat. Uh, Wendy, Mike, anything else you guys want to share related to strategies, do's, don'ts, suggestions for people trying to make ends meet right now? Uh, Well, I was going to offer something else and then I can think about if there's anything particular to COVID. Um, Oh, okay. A quick thing that's particular to COVID that we just put in our letter this uh, this past time is just the acknowledgement that there are, um, I think, just naming for people. There are some people who can't give as much right now because of the economic impact of 2020. Name that to our donors. Accept that as a reality and say, like, we need adaptive generosity um, because from the folks who can still continue to give to give more. Um, just name that for people because the reality is a lot of the people who receive our letters can give more than they typically give. And so naming the need, I think, is beneficial. Um, As a general fundraising advice piece that I would offer is to, and this might just be the way that like Mike Bachman works, but because I'm not particularly inspired, like, oh boy, I get to fundraise today. Um, I, and maybe it's because I have ADHD, I don't know, but I tend to try to put like a fundraising seasons together where I set aside ahead of time, like I know in this month and this month, I'm gonna do a lot on fundraising. Then I'm not gonna really touch it for two months. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to write a bunch of grants during this month. And then I'm not going to touch it for two months. And then I'm going to work on this other, right? Like I, and that's part of what I'm doing today is I'm working on our grants calendar. I'm working on a bunch of other things and setting my fundraising calendar for 2021. um, So that I know when my deadlines are, I'm sitting on my calendar now um, because the reality is it's the kind of thing we always will push off uh, because we would much rather do the things that we went into ministry before. so set a routine, set it now, and set it for only one chunk of the year, not everything. Those are great tips. Love it. Wendy? Um, you know, one thing, this, again, this like could be like a whole other um, conversation. We're really leaning into um, a mutual aid model. Um, so if you're familiar with that, it's the idea that uh, within a community exists everything that it needs. And so it's more than just uh, financial, but it's like the relational needs, the financial needs, the knowledge needs, the tangible physical needs, like whatever a community needs, it has within it. Uh, and so part of what mutual aid does is you then it, it breaks down a hierarchy of importance. And so a lot of times, um, you know, money has the highest level of hierarchical importance in a community, especially like something like one like ours, where we're just like kind of scraping by by the skin of our teeth all the time. We put money up there. Um, and so the idea in a mutual aid model is that everybody has something they bring to the table. 
And so maybe some people bring money to the table, but perhaps other people bring relationships and entrance into communities that uh, some of the others of us may not have. Perhaps some people bring their life experience that informs our understanding of the gospel in a new way, or perhaps somebody else brings, you know, a particular skill to the community. Um, so what we've really tried to do in our work is really break down that hierarchy of importance uh, that often is implied in the community. I don't, none of us ever start off to say the people who give the most are the most important, but I think that's just part of our cultural assumption. And so we were working really hard to break that down. Um, and we found incredible generosity all across the board now that we've really tried to make a more even, uh, understanding of what people bring everybody in our community brings something to the table that's equally valid um, again and it's like once that once you have a floodgate of generosity in one way it just keeps unfolding in all these other ways love it thank you oh that's beautiful um so let's talk grants for a minute do either of you apply for grants about how much money a year do you get um and what suggestions do you have for planters looking for that kind of funding right now it's always hard to come up with generic advice on grants, quite honestly, um, because where you are matters a lot for that, um, as well as, you know, what the nature of your of your church is and what kind of initiatives they have. Um, uh, and so I think it's worth doing an inventory of what are the things that our church does and who's interest, who might be willing to fund it, right? There might be things that you do that don't have overtly religious components that a non-religious group would be happy to help fund. Right. After school programs, um, mentoring programs uh, to a degree, even like vacation Bible school, even though it has a religious component, could be something like that. And when you look at grants, potential grants for different programs that your church does, take into consideration the full cost of doing that program. Right. The full cost of doing that program includes a portion of your time if some of your time is dedicated to it. Um, you know, you're paid something. Um, figure out what your hourly wage is. Uh, if you were to break it down um, for your full package and then figure out how many hours am I dedicating to this, that's part of the cost of making that thing happen. Um, and so it's okay to ask for grants to help, you know, make that reality come to pass. Um, I encourage, I mean, gosh, as far as finding grants, look for stuff in your area, um, ask people about organizations, family foundations are damn near impossible to find. They're real cagey. Um, <laughs> I get to know, oftentimes there are philanthropic organizations like in North Texas area, there's Communities Foundation of Texas, there's Dallas Foundation, there's Dallas Women's Foundation. Like find organizations like that and get to know someone who's a donor representative. Because this person's job is literally to meet with potential donors and help them find places to give their money to. Get on those person's calendars <laughs> uh, and ask them if there are grants that they know of. It's one of the things that I always do is I'm just always asking people like, well, what grants are you applying for? What grants do you know of out there? This is what we do. Do you know where we might fit? Um, check a lot of things in the annual conference. Um, I've applied for like every last grant our annual conference has offered. Uh, and um, Owen's on this call, he knows. Um, and uh, his office uh, just recently put together, yeah. <laughs> his office just recently put together uh, a list of a whole bunch of grants that they were able to sniff out in uh, the North Texas area that churches might be eligible for. That's part of my day today is finally going through that full list, identifying what in 2021 we might be eligible for. 
Um, it, it takes time and if put in that time or do something that I've never been successful at, get some amazing people in your congregation to take that on. Um, yeah. That's great. I love the advice, especially finding someone to talk to you about it. Cause I know that when I was applying for grants for my DCOM from the board of missions, uh, they wanted big grants. They wanted big projects. But when I went to the foundation, they were like, listen, we only have 80 grand and everybody's asking for 80. We want to help a lot of people. So let's help 20 people that only asked for $5,000. And so I made sure that my ask was about $5,000 so that I could be accepted more easily. So yeah, there is strategy involved. It does take time. And then you have to make sure if there are benchmarks or forms you have to fill out or numbers you have to provide that you honor all of that. Speaking to like the transparency that Wendy was talking about. So um, it is a lot of work but can be worthwhile. And, and I would say onto that, uh, after a little time you start to realize there are also some grants, don't bother with. Like there are some grants that will ask you to fill out 15 pages of information for a $2,000 grant and they're gonna want you to write three reports on it. That is not worth your time. And here's the thing, if you're feeling like plucky, send them an email and tell them that. <laughs> uh, oh my <laughs> Okay. Um, because those things are out there. And so do an honest evaluation of how much money is being offered and how much of my time is this going to take? Because there's some grants, just, just don't chase them. I think that also kind of goes with mission creep. Um, I, when I worked in nonprofit before, that was part of the challenge is, uh, you know, funders would kind of change a little bit of what they were looking for. And so we would alter what we were presenting ourselves to, um, to make it, to kind of chase the dollar. Um, and that, you know, usually is not a helpful, um, a helpful way to go um, as far as when it comes to grant, grant dollars. Um, but I do think that there are often ways that we can be really intentional about um, how we spin off certain parts. And a lot of that, like Mike said, it goes back to like who you know, like one of our folks, their partner works at Walmart and just like sent me this little email real quick. It was like, if you can fill this form out by the end of the day, they can give you $5,000. You know, so a lot of it is like letting everybody that you know, know that you're willing to receive or look at or, you know, investigate grants because you never know where something's going to come up. Great point. Okay, I'm going to end with a final question unless there are more questions and feel free to blow up the chat. But, um, you know, I'm hearing more and more conversation about how it's expensive to start new faith communities and the average Methodist annual conference historically over the last 10 years would put, you know, quarter of a million ish into every new faith community, which is a huge investment and money's tight. So they're encouraging more of a co-vocational approach where we do something similar to you, Mike, where maybe you run and manage that coffee shop while you plant a faith community out of that. Is that even feasible? What do you guys think about co-vocational ministry and how that could work in healthy ways? I think it's a terrible idea. Um, <laughs> quite honestly, uh, <laughs> I don't know how to possibly start a new faith community without it being your focus. And, and I will say that like, and uh, Owen has watched with frustration times that my attention has been distracted and focused on developing the coffee shop component of things instead of discipleship and community building and all those things. Right, so even in our setting, that's a reality. But one of the things that we did to hedge against that is I do not manage the coffee shop. 
I've never managed the coffee shop. I supervise the coffee shop manager because one of the things that we saw from a failed coffee shop attempt after failed coffee shop attempt from local churches was that the pastor tried to be the pastor and the coffee shop manager. And at the end of the day, you got to choose between do I order cups or do I invite people to worship? And you're going to order cups every time. Um, there's only so many hours. And so, I, I mean, I really... Now, I don't sit on the funding side of things, so it's really easy for me to say this. <laughs> but, but I think that um, it's, uh, it's better to invest more money in a limited number of plants with full attention of the pastor than it is to do a bunch of co-vocational stuff. But I also only know that anecdotally, and I don't sit in, I don't know, funding seats, and I don't know the research. So I could be completely wrong. What are your thoughts, Wendy? Would you be co-vocational? I, I don't know how in the world I would have started. Again, I'm a modified parachute drop. I think most places don't do parachute drops anymore. I always say it's a terrible way to plan a church. <laughs> it's worked for us, but um, there are a lot of reasons why that's been the case. Um, there is, I always say, I've, I say this all the time, um, every single dollar we need as annual conferences, we have access to. And it is almost always sitting in buildings that need to be reimagined and given new life and legacy. Um, it's in sitting in congregations that have run their fateful life cycle and are waiting for um, death and resurrection to come. And so I fully believe that every annual conference has all they need uh, to invest fully and completely in new church starts. And Mike, I totally agree with you. I think a limited number um, that have, have success is going to, is going to bear great fruit. All right. Oh my goodness. I've learned a lot. Um, if there are any other questions, you guys can pop those in the chat, but, um, I'm just grateful for both of you and your faith communities and your innovation and the ways that you're reaching new people and, um, helping to pay those bills because you're impacting and transforming lives. It's, it's holy work and it's important to support it, uh, even in these uncertain times. So thank you guys for being cool and for responding back to my email and text and being late to the Zoom meeting, but on time for everybody else. So <laughs> I had to pick on just you, Mike. Wendy was on time. She was awesome. Well, we'll bring you back for a round two. Um, okay, so thank you. If you guys have questions for Wendy or Mike, uh, after this discussion, feel free to shoot me an email and I can help connect you. My email address is rgilmore at umcfellowship.org. Thanks, guys. Field Preachers Podcast has been a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Visit all our podcasts at podcasts.umcdiscipleship.org.